On this episode of the podcast, I have a conversation with Michael Ness. Michael started out as a mainstream member of the LDS Church and even served a mission. He has since become a Mormon fundamentalist. In this episode, not only do we go over his backstory, but we also talk about how deeper doctrines and the higher ordinances of the gospel point and bind us to Christ. That's next on this episode of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. Well, Michael, I can't appreciate you enough for being here. Um, were you born a fundamentalist? Oh, that's a tricky question. I, I, I personally, well, in, in reflection on my upbringing, I kind of think I was a hair's breadth away from being raised that way. Um, both, both my families um, come from pretty much darn near peer pioneer stock um at least uh on both of my grandmother's sides of the family and so it was a uh, it wasn't the worst jump in the world towards right. going towards fundamentalism because i was raised very traditionally okay so when you say traditional can can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit what, what do you mean traditional in a mormon context right so there's like traditional which is what you and I are like way traditional and then there's like LDS traditional. So, so, so tell me about your traditional LDS upbringing. All right. Uh, I guess with a little bit of family history might help with it. Um, and it, I'll try to condense it. Uh, but my mom's mom was from Vernal, Utah, you know, and she remembers apostles and presidents of the church, like David O. McKay and Ezra Taft Benson and, and, you know, and these people coming and just speaking in their in their ward, you know, out in Vernal. And, you know, she's told me, oh, I knew President McKay very well. And I knew Ezra Taft Benson really well. You know, and when, when she graduated high school, she moved out to Washington, D.C. And because Benson was in politics and living in D.C. at the time, he was he was in a you know, he was in a cabinet for President Eisenhower. Right. You know, and so, and so ben, President Benson, Apostle Benson at the time was was in her ward. You know, and so, so she, I knew, I knew President Benson very well, you know, and so that's kind of, was very interesting for, for, for her, you know, and telling me stories and said, you know, teaching me things about what she knew growing up. And so the answers to questions were always very fundamentalistic. Right. You know, and with my dad, for example, you know, his dad, you know, wasn't an active member of the church but would tell him, you know, and point him towards Isaiah and say, like, there's a prophecy here. Seven women would take hold of one man, you know, in the last days. And, you know, his dad told him, you know, 
the church will have polygamy restored. And so my father told me that, right. You know, and so those are the answers. Those are the beliefs that I was kind of raised with. So, so like plural marriage wasn't like a taboo subject in your home. No, no, it really wasn't. The only, uh, the only thing I heard was from the women, uh, you know, uh, my grandma, the same grandma that I mentioned about knowing president Benson would say stuff like, you know, I'm so grateful. I don't have to live that law in this life and I have, I can wait to live it in the next one, you know, stuff like that. And so she's like, I know it's an, an eternal law, but I'm just grateful that the, the prophets said we don't have to live it now. You know, it's, gotcha. that's like the, the distinction between. Okay. And, and how did, the, how did you, let's say stuff on Adam God, was that ever floated in the house? No, Ned, no, no one had any idea about Adam God until I brought that into the house. So, so you're the one that started it. Yeah, I got, I got off my mission and, you know, we can get into that story and that background more if we want to, but yeah, I got off my mission. Yeah, let, let's do that. So, so, yeah, let's back up for just a second. So you're raised in this very traditional LDS home. I imagine yep. your folks are going to the temple monthly. I imagine that... Um, you guys have your, your eight bins of wheat down in the, in the store cellar, right? I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it, well, I do still, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I, I got a ton of it, but, um, the other thing is, is that you guys are all watching conference on, on conference weekend, um, and family home evening, all that's probably an Eagle scout by the time you were 14 or 15, I'm guessing, am, am, am I hitting these? Yeah, that was those are goals for sure that were that was expected. I, I I made life scout with most of my badges before I was fifteen. Okay, all right, just just check it and see. For me, I I think I'll always to some degree feel like a little bit of an outsider in Mormonism, even though I believe it wholeheartedly. But because I I spent you know the first eighteen years of my life outside of Mormonism it's always interesting to, to hear those stories, right? Cause that, that just wasn't in my lexicon whatsoever, any of that stuff. Right. I did have some LDS friends. Um, but, uh, by and large, I mean, that, yeah, I wasn't exposed to it. So, so you do that, obviously a mission is expected, right? You're going to go on a mission for the church. So when you go out on a mission, can do you, are you able to tell like, Ooh, maybe I was raised even a little bit different than the other missionaries around me. Oh, oh, absolutely. And this, so let's back up even further. So I, I got to the point where I was about 15 years old and I basically was like fed up with how traditional my parents were with Mormonism. And I kind of just was like, you know, I would rather focus on other aspects of my life right now. And, you know, and so I go to ward meetings and stuff, you know, but any extracurricular activities, I would try to dodge as much as possible, you know, so you're uh, skipping, my, you're skipping it, mutual, right? I mean, right. You're, and all that, as, as much as I could get away with in my late teenage years. Right. Um, so when I went, when I graduated high school, I had really, I really didn't have a testimony. Um, and I didn't get it until I was about 19 turning 20. And then, you know, the world kind of changed for me. And I decided like, okay, I want to go serve a mission because I gained that testimony that, okay, I, I, this is something I want to share. I want to share the, the fruits of the gospel um okay back up tell me about that tell me about that moment when you're like oh man the gospel's true right this isn't just cultural that there this has validity this has chops right what what was that moment all right that 
that we'll have to kind of back up more into this teenage years to, okay. for this to make full sense. So like, like I said, I'm kind of looking for an excuse not to be involved as much as possible in my late teenage years. And so I find the CES letter when I'm 17 <laughs> and I start reading it and in it, you got this Adam God thing, you know? And so that was the, that was like the first time I brought it up into to family. Like I, I, if I believe, um, and so then I, I started, um, long story short, about two years later, I'm 19 and I take it to, I take this issue to my grandparents and to, uh, or to my, and to my home teacher or their home teacher, who was a chaplain in the U S army. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be a chaplain in the U S army, you need to have a psychology degree. And he was really interesting because being an LDS chaplain, he, he was put in a career where all the other chaplains in the army were pretty much Protestant or Catholic or something else that all hated Mormons. And so, and so he was put in this position of like, he was being anti all the time and he didn't know all this anti-Mormon literature and every, or every apologetic possible for members of the church that were in the army. So he talked to me about Adam God and he basically said, you know, Michael, uh, Brigham Young did say that he got a revelation on it. And here's my advice. My advice is that you can study this. You can try to understand what Brigham Young received through revelation. Uh, but I warn you that it does not, it does not seem to be scriptural and I would not teach it, but feel free to study it. And, you know, and that was a pretty good, that was a pretty good, uh, that that's a real good answer actually. Right. Because that, that does two things. It doesn't shut you down entirely and make the, the, the doctrine seem like bootleg whiskey, if you will. Right. right. At, at the same time, it's like, don't don't teach this or you're going to end up in the state president's office. Right. And and so I had that on my shelf when I went on my mission and it just kind of always nagged me in the back of my brain. And eventually, um, you know, on our P days, our preparation days, when we're emailing families and we have access to the computers and the church offices, I would, you know, go on fairmormon.org and they find that they had links to the journal of discourses. And I would go and look up every talk with a, from Brigham Young or Orson Pratt on topics that I wanted to research and I'd copy and paste them and email them to myself so that I could just read them off of my tablet uh, throughout the week. And so I did my studies, uh, my extracurricular studies out of the scriptures and obtained the journal of discourses that way. And I'd go through the scriptures and I'd try to, you know, so I knew what Brigham Young said about Adam God, you know, as much as, you know, uh, but I still had questions and I'd go through the scriptures and try to see it. And like, yeah, it's kind of there, but it's not enough. And I'd pray about it. And I'd, I, I wanted to know, I really wanted to know, but then I got to a ward or a branch out in the middle of nowhere on the shores of Lake Superior in, in Wisconsin um, called Ashland. And the the branch was throwing away books. And so I went through and said, you know, okay, maybe there's something in here I can, if they're throwing them out, I can, I can find something that's valuable in here. And I found a copy of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith compiled by, by Joseph Fielding Smith. Uh-oh. And right. <laughs> it was about eight months before the end of my mission. Um, I, or uh, yeah, about, about eight months from the end of my mission, I get to, page 157 in that mm-hmm. area where it starts giving that priest a discourse um, about Adam right. and the spirit hit me 
and told me, you know, the father, you know, Adam is the father of your spirits or your spirit. And, uh, I was filled with this, this feeling of joy. I was so ecstatic after having put that much thought and that much prayer into it. And for it to hit me unexpected when I was reading something from Joseph Smith and not from Brigham Young, you know, and have it hit me that way when I wasn't even really, you know, I wasn't looking for it at that moment. And I just wanted to run and tell my companion and tell the district leader and his companion that we're living in that apartment. And it took pretty much everything, you know, in me not to go and get myself in trouble right then and there. Gotcha. So, so was your, this is interesting. So is your conversion to the gospel as a whole, a direct um, result of gaining a testimony of the Adam God doctrine? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, the, my testimony as a whole came, uh, what in two, two major slaps to the face, very close to each other. Um, where I was, like I said, I was, I was distancing myself from, from Mormonism, you know, becoming kind of agnostic and, and I love religion. I love philosophy. And I was, I was studying Hinduism at the time. And I was, I was studying just history of religion and different religions and all sorts of fun philosophies and stuff. And I was trying to date a girl who was a member of the church, you know, and I was trying to push my nonchalant or agnostic kind of attitude on her. And she really pushed me back on, um, you know, no, I I have a testimony of the gospel and it just hit me one day, you know, talking to her uh, where I, I just said to myself, you know what, she's kind of right. Either it's true the gospel's true the book of mormon's true you know that kind of you know and it, and if it's true i have nothing to lose and if it's wrong i have nothing to lose you know right i'm at that, I'm at that point in my life where it's like okay if, if it's if i don't if it, if the promise doesn't hold up it doesn't change anything but if it's true that would that would change everything that would change the way i want to live my life and, and i got to that point where i just started reading and that first slap in the face i mentioned was when i got to second nephi chapter uh, chapter two, where it starts talking about opposition and all things. And it became incredibly just, uh, I, I perceived that that was the most profound philosophical treatise on human existence I'd ever read at that point. And it has smacked me with truth. And then I read two chapters later, the second Nephi chapter four, which is, uh, I found out later, called by some people the Psalm of Nephi, where he's literally yeah. pouring his heart out. A uh, wretched man his, that I am. And yeah. His father, his father just died and his brothers are trying to kill him. Uh, and he's having to take everyone that believes and, and flee. And he's just, he's in the depths of his own personal hell. And it resonated so much with me that I just, I, the one question I asked myself was like, could Joseph Smith have written something this powerful from another man's perspective? You know, right. I, I just felt it. I felt it so deeply that, and, and it moved me so much And the spirit was just with those two things back to back that close. I, I was, it, it completely gave me that testimony and that, you know, almost a baptism of fire type thing. And I said, I want to share this and I want to go on a mission, you know? <laughs> so now I'm going to ask you kind of, kind of a question here to, to for, for a dichotomy. And, and if you don't have an answer, that's fine. Do you ever remember a time 
when when maybe you were praying or something like that and you asked to know if the gospel was true or if the LDS church was God's true church? Or did you just make the assumption that the LDS church was the only place to have Mormonism, Mormonism dispensed to you, so to speak? Well, I think that was a partial assumption, but I also knew that I could just go into the mission field to the church. And that's what I wanted to do after I read that was right. just go on a mission. And so that was the, you know, why argue with the mechanism that's already provided that way. Right. But I will tell you that about six months out on my mission, I started asking that question once yeah. I was confronted with other groups and especially being out in the Midwest right? where they have, the, where they have the community of Christ Mm-hmm. and other breakoff groups from the um you know in the restoration and i started praying about things and i was reading dnc 132 at about six months out and i wanted to know like was this of god you know was you know was wilford woodruff a prophet of god could a prophet of god issue the manifesto and was it a revelation i, I was i was starting to wonder all those things I, so the only- I, oh, go ahead sorry go- Oh, I was just going to say, and I, so I asked, you know, I asked the Lord after a, a good study of DNC 132 and uh, official declaration one, but I asked the wrong question. I asked the Lord, is Wilfred Woodruff a prophet of God? And okay. of course he answered and told me, yeah, yeah, Wilfred Woodruff's a prophet of God. And I was so satisfied with that. And I just kept working on my mission, but it was the wrong question. But I was laboring under an assumption that prophets were infallible. Like right. truly, if you were chosen by God, like God would, like Wilfred Woodruff would say later, like God will not suffer me to lead this people astray. Right. He will remove me out of my place. So, so a couple things there. The, the reason I asked the question is because of my own experience. And, and the more fundamentalists I talk to, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to see a pattern emerge, which is typically, I know, and this is what I did. I prayed to know if the gospel was true. And I never mentioned the church in that. I just assumed that that this was the only place where Mormonism was dispensed was in the LDS church. <laughs> right. right. So I ask if the gospel is true. Well, yes, the gospel is true. Is the Book of Mormon true? Yes, the Book of Mormon is 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 a true doc is a, is a true piece of scripture. Well, if that's the case, and this church is handing it to me, and they are dispensing quote Mormonism. Then, then the church by default has to be true. And the more fundamentalists I talk about and kind of get their backstory, the more I find that that's, the, that's typically how this works, right? It's, it's, it's very rarely do I hear someone say, I prayed to know if the LDS church was the Lord's one true church. It was always, is the gospel true? Is the Book of Mormon true? Was Joseph Smith a prophet? And, and that's, and then it's that, that assumption that, that, Hey, this is where Mormonism is dispensed that leads people to the LDS church. And so I I just wanted to get your opinion on that. As far as Wilford Woodruff goes, it has taken, it took me probably a good seven years before I could say Woodruff was a true prophet. And, and, and the reason I can say that is probably because I'll be honest with you. I think Wilford Woodruff phrased the manifesto just the right way so that it was never um never a revelation and never a commandment to cease practicing plural marriage he never comes out and says stop he said it's my advice we stop right so he's yeah. very careful in that and and 
it, it's, it took me a long time to be able to um, find sympathy for him, right? Because I feel like he's in a horrible position. He's watching people go to jail. He's watching families being torn apart. His predecessor dies in hiding, right? And so mm-hmm. he's, he, you know, they're threatening to seize the temple. And, and I, these days I feel for Wilford a lot. Now, having said that, I will say that he, he did, he did compromise, right? I mean, Will, uh, John Taylor had, had revelations that said, you know, stay close to the Lord. You know, I, I've, I've decreed things. You, you stick to it. And, and, and under that pressure, I mean, look, we can all sit back and say, you know, I wouldn't have done that, but we don't know. Right. I mean, you have the full force of the United States government, not just coming after you, but coming after all the people you are trying to be a shepherd to. That's a different ball of wax. It's it is so hard to be in his position. And, you know, and he would say stuff about two years earlier in 1888 that he would rather attend a funeral than attend a, a quorum meeting with the quorum of the 12 apostles at that point, because just the they were so they were so wrapped up in the political machinations of, of getting statehood and fighting for the civil liberties of their people uh, and also trying to, you know, maintain the integrity of their religion and of the temples and you continue with the ordinances. And there's so many elements that go into that. And I do not, you know, I do not envy his position whatsoever. Um, you know, people, some people were saying that they would wish that a, a younger man could be cho- chosen as president of the church, you know, before they reorganized the first presidency. And, uh, you know, and John W. Taylor, at some, I think it was an April conference of 1890, you know, basically said the reason we're not getting revelations right now is because we're all too concerned about our temporal affairs and making money, you know, talking right. about the brethren, right? you know, and yeah, so it's just, that was a, that was a tough time. That was a tough time, and I tend to have a little more more sympathy for him. Anyway, sorry, I was a bit of a tangent. So, you you you're able to read, um, you're able to gain this this answer that Wilford Woodruff was a prophet, and so that that I'm guessing that kind of puts any concerns you have to bed about finishing your mission, right? Because it sounds like you're kind of starting to question some stuff as far as the LDS Church why you're on your mission. But that answer kind of smooths everything over that allows you to finish your mission. Is am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, pretty much. You know, and even the and my Adam God revelation. You know, uh, what would that be? Eight months after that, you know, uh, or so. You know, didn't do anything besides. You know, didn't really make me think the church was an apostasy necessarily at the moment. Just that the this wasn't being taught at the moment, and I kind of just resolved to put it back on the shelf and. I'll go study out what Brigham Young and others said about this when I get off my mission. And that's, and so back to this, you know, your first question of, uh, was, was Adam God ever brought into my home? You know, uh, I brought it in when I got off my mission, I told my dad, look, this is what I found in the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. This is what Brigham Young said. Hold on one second. So let, let's finish the mission first here, right? Oh, okay. Is there, is there anything else that happens as far as the mission, right? That, that is of note or, or noteworthy or anything like that? You know, I, the only thing personally um, that happened that I could think of was I, I dreaded getting off and returning to okay. uh, being, being an unproductive and un, unsaintly individual. Um, and so I was just praying and asked, I said, Lord, you know, I, I, I've seen my companions that I've had get, get home 
and they've lost interest in the gospel or they've become inactive after getting a girlfriend or whatever, you know, I've been out for months. I'm at the end of my mission now. And I've seen all these people that once they're off their mission, they've, you know, about half of them or more over time end up quickly, even, you know, having a, or either, either they go off and say, I'm not going to, I don't want to attend my meetings anymore because I just did it for two years straight over the top, or they just became very worldly. You know, and their and their pursuits of the gospel was, oh, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to do summer sales and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to uh, do this and this and this. And this is my plan to be a stake president by the time I'm 30 years old. And, you know, and so there's like these two extremes. And I just was asking the Lord, like, give, please just help me obtain a witness for myself that will prevent me from apostatizing one way or the other, you know, and. Right. And that was my prayer. And the Lord showed me some things, uh, gave me a personal testimony of the first vision and of uh, the very literal nature of Christ uh, giving his life on the cross for us uh, as an atonement. And that uh, was very much uh, that, that thing that I asked for, that, uh, that I would have that witness necessary for me to, to keep me on a path moving forward and not, and not get distracted once I got off my mission from building up the kingdom of God. Gotcha. So when you got off your mission, did you have any idea that you'd end up going fundamentalist? I began to wonder um, because I, I saw the I saw the apologetics and things said by the church leaders about Adam God uh, when I just knew, frankly, the apologetics were 90 percent all lies, just false statements. And it's a big question to me that like in John 17, it says, behold, this is life eternal to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so if the church doesn't know the identity of God, it's very, it's not a, it's not a good situation to be in. Also, I think it's in DNC one twelve, where it says, you know, my judgments will begin on my house where you, wherein you have profaned and blasphemed my name, mm-hmm. you know, so knowing the correct name of God is in the correct character of God. You know, Joseph Smith said that too, you know, it is the first principle to know the character of God, right. you know, so uh, so I kind of wondered what was going to happen there. And so I was planning on going to college at BYUI and I had a stone's throw from Utah mm-hmm. and I had resolved to start talking to fundamentalists in Utah when I, once I moved to Idaho. Okay. So, so you, you've already decided once you're off your mission, did you know you were going to BYU Idaho before you got off your mission? No. Okay. So it was pretty soon. Okay. All right. So, so you, if nothing else happens, you get off your mission and then, then take me through the progression of how it is you became a Mormon fundamentalist. All right. So, uh, <laughs> well, um, I found a Facebook page that at the time was just called the Church of the Firstborn. And it was run by a man that you have actually interviewed already named Jacob Vadrine. And he and I started talking over uh, Facebook Messenger, and I started attending meetings with them in Orem. Um, and then I, over time, just became acquainted with other people. There's like an interesting intersectionality. Like there's there's all these circles within circles, and I'm sure that you've seen that. Like yep. once you meet a new person, or uh, they acquaint you with all of their circle, but then like he's also part of another circle with other friends, and he can kind of introduce you to that. Then you and you learn by like. By different chain links all these different yeah you know and so that that began to happen exponentially where i started attending 
uh, meetings at the, with the branch at Ben Schaefer's house in, uh, right. in, in work for a time. Um, uh, I, I would, uh, talk with Jordan Peterson and, and some of his companions. And I, I understand he has different companions now than when I first met him over two Actually, years ago. Actually, Jordan was just released, uh, released off his mission this weekend. So he's, oh, he's God done bless that. He's yeah. done it. Dude, he's been, uh, He's been serving a long time. He served, I think, twice as long as I probably did for the church. Uh, I'm Seems not sure like how me. long he served, but yeah, he's been out a while. So I think it was nearly four years. That's amazing. He, he was my he was the missionary that that came over to to talk to me when I joined the branch. So yeah, so and that was just about a year ago. Well, anyway, shout out to Jordan Peterson if you hear That's this. Right. That's right. That's right. You, you got to be careful because there's like Jordan Peterson. Like make your bed, Jordan Peterson. Oh, oh, and, oh sure. And then you have, no. you know, <laughs> well, you, you and I know, and others will know who we're talking. Right, about. right, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you you just kind of start attending meetings, and as you're saying, there there's overlap, right? You just start. Right. I've I've always said in, in these circles. I mean, once you know three or four people, you're kind of connected. It's like that old Kevin Bacon game, right? Eight, eight degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. Right. Uh, uh, and Jacob, Jacob and I started working together um, as carpenters in Orem. And uh, we had a job site in, uh, in Santa Quinn, Utah. And mm-hmm. Kevin Kraut lived in Santa Quinn. And so every once in a while, I'd pop in and go talk to Kevin. Um, and he would, every once in a while, he'd give me a few books or something, you know. And uh, I always appreciated that. And at the time, you know, this was all going on. I started writing a letter to my family, you know, about like, this is like almost Martin Luther style, like 95 thesis. This is why the church has departed from the, you know, you know I could just see you weird. like tapping that letter to the front door of your house and then knocking and taking off. So, and I never sent it to him. I still haven't to this day. I've never sent it to them. I started it in, I think April or August of 2019 and I started writing it and uh, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. I think it ended up being like over 50 pages or something. And I've never sent it to my family, but I, I fully intended to, as I was living in Utah or, or uh, living in Idaho, then I moved to Utah, ended up working with Jacob, as I said. Uh, and I was writing this letter the whole time about how I'm going to drop this bomb to my family about how I'm pursuing fundamentalism. Um, now then, well, COVID happened. And then, it's, so it's March of 2020, I believe, that's the, 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 about that area. And the Lord told me, move back to, to, to home, you know, go back to, and so I moved to back to Seattle where my family was living and what blew my mind because at the time you had the, you had the black lives matter and Antifa stuff going on and Chaz yeah. was like right in downtown. All that was going on on top of COVID and I didn't want to be in a city, but the Lord told me to go. So I went and I had some profound experiences there that, um, that led me to the path that I'm on now. Um, uh, I ended up taking a job, um, in South Dakota logging and, uh, I lived with a polygamist family that was, uh, associated with the AUB for a long okay. time. Okay. Yep. And then through them, I met, uh, Drew Briney, who I think probably several people who listen to, you know, or know about fundamentalism will know Drew Briney and books that he's published and, you know, and so, um, and he was living in Missouri. And so I went down to Missouri and uh, that's how I'm here. So at what point, 
at what point do you realize you're full-fledged, right? You're, you're no longer LDS. You are a Mormon fundamentalist. Cause well, I don't know. I don't know about you, but, but there was a, a crystallization of that moment for me where I remember, well, I guess that's what I am, right? I'm a Mormon fundamentalist. Was there ever like a moment or was it just kind of gradual? You know, it was, there were certain moments that were definitive, but certain different things pertaining to it. Uh, You know, there were definitive moments for each different point, I think, but the whole thing had been gradual. Uh, The first time I ever received a rebaptism was August or September of 29 uh, of 2018. And so that's a fundamentalistic thing, mm-hmm. you know, and, yep. and so that was, uh, that was the first thing, right. And then um, as far as actually, to, you know, getting into fundamentalism and then attending meetings um, and, and, uh, and having sacrament with fundamentalists that, you know, or that was, that was acceptable, you know, around the same time that was, that was done. Um, but yeah, at that point, around 2019, the early part of 2019, I was living in Rexburg, Idaho. Still, I, I, I pretty much decided that uh, um, the church had, was was going the opposite direction that was it was necessary to move in to build the kingdom of God, and right, and I, I realized that you know, the, I need to work somewhere else, and I need to find uh, a, the best place where I can lift and, and stand you know, gotcha. and do my part. Gotcha. Does your family know that you're a fundamentalist now? Oh yeah. Yeah. How'd that go down? Uh, well, I think it was partially, uh, softened by my slow approach with things like Adam God. And, and I talked to my dad about law of consecration and how I'd like to have a property with, with my brother and my sister and their families and dad in the future and kind of have this, you know, where we can live the law of consecration that we covenant to live in the temple, even still today, you know, in the church, they covenant to live that. And so he was all for that one, by the way, he was like, Oh yeah, we, we covenant that one. We should live that law, you know, and uh, not knowing that the, you know, or even knowing that there's not a, there's not an avenue to practice that in the church, you know, you know, and not knowing that that's kind of the big focus of a lot of fundamentalist groups is that's one of the core principles uh, so it was softened by degrees. You know, I, I was kind of leaving this breadcrumb trail of, of, of fundamentalism for them. But the the, the final moment was when I uh, introduced them to some polygamists. And, uh, <laughs> Did you like bring them over for like dinner? Or I mean, when you mean introduce um, them? We were at a family reunion uh, in Kaysville, Utah. Okay. And uh, I took my dad to meet Tom Green before he died. Um, because I was, I was in the process of interviewing Tom Green. I'd been, I was living in Orem still before COVID, um, I believe. And, uh, I have to check my journal or whatever, or or the dates of those interviews. In any case, I was back in Utah and I had been interviewing Tom Green before I left Utah for Washington at some point. And I had established that really, you know, I was just talking about his history, getting that angle. I was pretty much trying to talk to most fundamentalists who would talk to me I, I talked to uh um antonio trevison down in, in ephraim uh, from the church of the firstborn background as well at that around that time i was talking a bunch i was trying to interview a bunch of people but he was by that you know tom green was close by and i figured all right we're gonna see what happens i'll bring my dad and have lunch with tom green right and let, let me ask you this so so i'm i'm seeing a lot of um 
LeBarons in 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 our discussion here. Do you identify as kind of like from that lineage, so to speak, that priesthood yeah. lineage? I have a lot of friends uh, from that uh, from that lineage, and uh, there's a little bit of history there. And I did associate with uh, with the Church of the Firstborn um, for for a while, and um, the Lord has led me to pursue some other things at the moment. But I don't discredit anything uh, good that was given me. Gotcha. And any perspective, and and honestly, there are things and testimonies that I have, and blessings that I, you know, and truths that that I know that that will forever enrich and bless my life that I that I learned through them, and I'm very grateful that the Lord led me there to teach me, uh, to, you know, to teach me truth, you know, and uh, but there are there are things um, that I didn't expect to to kind of lead me out from from that um, association for, for at least a time. Um, who knows what will happen with some of those individuals in the future. Right. Gotcha. Okay. No, that's, that's good. So, so then you, 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 you head down to, uh, to Missouri, right. And then when you go down to Missouri, um, are you married at that time or. Nope. 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 No, I was not. I was a single man. Menace to society. As they say. Yeah. <laughs> What was the old quote by Brigham Young? I think it was like a bachelor over the age of 18 was a menace to society or something like that. Something uh, like I, that. I've heard varying numbers, you know, and I've read right. funny talks in the Journal of Discourses like him saying, if there's a man over 18 that's not married, I want him out of the territory. You know, I love Brigham. I really do. I love Brigham. I, 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 you know, I've always said I, uh, I wish I was as sweet and as charismatic as Joseph Smith, but unfortunately, I I'm I shouldn't say unfortunately. I mean, I I just identify more with Brigham. I mean, get your butt in the wagon. We're gonna cross the plains, and I don't want to hear any complaining, right? So, I'm the same way. The practical application of the gospel right. speaks to me. Yep, it does to me as well. So, all right. So you you move out there now. You're married now, right? Yep. How long? Since February 5th, however long that is now. Wow. Uh, About uh, three months. Yep. February, March, April. Yeah, three months. Nice. Congratulations. So you you met your wife in Missouri then? Yep. And she's a fundamentalist too, I take it? Yep. Yep. Raised in a family that came out of the AUB. Yep. Nice. Nice. Well, good deal, man. That's that's awesome. So when... when, uh, now we kind of know a little bit about you. When yes. uh, when you and I first talked, you said that you had been thinking a lot about how fundamentalist principles tie us back to Christ. Yes. And you kind of have a list here, and, and we're going to hit at least some of them, and then we're just going to kind of see where this goes. But but the first one on your list was was Adam God. So I want to focus on that because I think too often – and I think this happens more in the LDS church than it does in uh, with fundamentalists because fundamentalists typically want the whole enchilada, right? They don't want yeah. just the fries or just the burger. They want the full meal deal, so to speak. Um, if you could see my stomach, you'd understand why I make the food analogy. <laughs> but um, yeah, we, they, we tend to want the whole thing, not just whatever piece it within, within, the LDS church, a lot of times you find people who specialize in things, right? Like 
sister, you know, sister Smith may be really good at genealogy and that's her gospel hobby. And then there's another guy who's really into church history and really into obscure teachings. And that's his thing. And then another one's in the temple, right? So with these things, I think sometimes people can get wrapped up in just the doctrine themselves, right? Rather than how is the doctrine applicable at strengthening my relationship with, with Christ and with our heavenly father. And so when, when you pitched that idea, I was, I was all for it because I, I think as fundamentalists, we, we, we really do need to make a good case on we are Christ centered, right. At the end of the day, we're, we're, yes, we're about Jesus Christ and about our heavenly father and about the gospel that, that encompasses all of that. So let's just take Adam God. Let's start there. And the reason I want to start there, and, and I know I've quoted it on the show before, so I'm sure there's going to be some folks who roll their eyes, but I, I don't quote Catholic theologians a whole bunch. I can't, I can't remember who it was, but it was out of my, one of my mom's old um, books on Catholicism. And there was a guy in there who said that every heresy begins with a misconception of who God is. So explain to me, as best you can, how does Adam God um, tie us to Christ? How does that point us back towards Christ? I'd like to preface my remarks on that by just a little quickly. You said that it seems like in fundamentalism or in the church that some people can get wrapped up in the doctrines. And that was actually one of the biggest concerns with me as I got into fundamentalism was I saw people that who had studied themselves out of the church and people in the church were warning me at the same time. If you don't stop studying, you're going to study yourself out of the church. And I saw people who had done that in fundamentalism and they were so into the doctrines and make, make systematizing perfectly systematizing how all these doctrines relate to each other, that their children were squandering in unbelief in mm-hmm. the, in the baby because they did not understand the gospel of Christ. You know, they did not understand the first principles. Um, right have you have you seen that at all um so my my, not really and and i'm going to 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 tell you why first off my my route to fundamentalism was first just being an independent right so um i didn't have that same exposure that maybe maybe you did now having said that in the last year i i joined the branch right and and I will say this, the branch seems to be very balanced in their approach. So I haven't I haven't got um, it, the where where, you know, because some branches of fundamentalism really glom on hard to law of adoption. Right. Some branches really glom on hard to plural marriage, some glom on hard to whatever it is. But but you'll notice there's some flavors and. That was one of the things that attracted me to Christchurch, and I, I don't mean to 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 shamelessly plug here because that's not the point. But the, so I, I didn't I didn't get that a lot. Right? Is that um, within Christchurch everything is pretty balanced and everything has a place? And if you're trying to live the fullness, that you know that's in my estimation how it should be. Yeah, I, and I think that is exactly how it should be. And I noticed that people who were fundamentalists that had converted from the church had a very good uh, center about them. Um, but people who grew up in fundamentalism, like the kids who grew up consistently in fundamentalism, 
didn't have the same understanding of the doctrine of Christ uh, that, that I grew up with or that I acquired through, through the church uh, in my early 20s serving a mission. And so that was my question is, okay, if I'm going to be a fundamentalist, how do I, how do I center all these doctrines back towards Christ? You know, and how, how do, you know, systematizing them and perfectly aligning all the nuances and, what's, and who said what is, is fine. And that's fun to do sometimes. Uh, I don't think it's entirely fully possible, but you cannot just systematize a cosmology and not live the gospel in your home. And anyway, so that off that tangent, um, in the scriptures, you have certain statements like, I, I am your Lord Jesus Christ, who stood in the midst of eternity among the seraphic hosts of heaven before the world was made. You know, or that, you know, or in DNC, that's in DNC 38 and DNC 76, it says that all the worlds were created through him by him, you know, and so you have a serious paradox with later Mormon teachings in Nauvoo and, and with, with Adam God in, in that you have this genealogy of gods and how, how is it then that Christ is the creator of all these worlds and all the things that are in them, you know, so what Adam God does first off is make you question that. And it makes you say, okay, hold up. There's a, he, there, there's some, there's something here where there's a, there's a, this entire lineage, this entire genealogy, this family tree of exalted beings and our, and, uh, and that we come from them literally. Uh, but that through the fall, we've been kind of divorced from them. Right. And so Christ is this mediator and he's this link to grow, kind of as Jacob chapter five has this, this allegory of the graft, right? Grafting the branches back into the tree, you know? And so Christ grafts us through oath and covenant, you know, through the priesthood back into the genealogy and family tree of the gods, you know, uh, first off there's that. Uh, But still then you have these scriptures and how is this, how is this reconciled? Um, And it's very interesting. It was pointed out to me that in Hebrews chapter seven, uh, there's a discourse given on Melchizedek, you know, and how, and it's trying, and he's, and the author of the Hebrews is trying to preface how Christ came after the order of, of, of the Melchizedek priesthood when the Jews were familiar with the, the, the Levitical priesthood at the time. And so he goes on to say that Melchizedek was so great a man that even our father Abraham paid tithes to him, you know, because the Jews were obsessed with genealogy and coming from Abraham. So, so, Melchizedek, who was a pattern of Christ, you know, was so great, Abraham paid tithes to him. But then he goes on further to say, but even the Levites, whose job it is to collect the tithes from all the people, when they collect the tithes from from Israel, essentially, they are paying tithes to Melchizedek. And he says, now how, basically, you know, how is that possible? Levi didn't even know Melchizedek. And discerning that the author or the reader would not like be kind of questioning how Levi could pay tithes to Melchizedek. He goes on to explain because Levi was yet in the loins of his father, Abraham, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And so there's this principle. that's really interesting. I find that uh, with the, with procreation and with the creation of, you know, with spiritual procreation um, and becoming the literal sons and daughters of God, uh, and with this literal genealogy and this family tree, that our father was in his father, and was in his father, and was in his father, 
And so when Christ says that he created all the worlds, it's just the same thing as Levi paying tithes to Melchizedek because he was within the loins of his father. You gotcha. Know? You know, and so it's very interesting, you know, that he's a, he's the possessor of those blessings. He's the possessor of those, those things. And, you know, and he is in that mediating position for us, but it's almost literally true in that we were there too, you know, you know, we are connected. We, we're essentially the sum total of all the attributes of our ancestors, even the gods right. that we, come from, you know, and I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think that does show, uh, you know, who Christ is at that moment. And it also, uh, it, 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 th- it throws way more light to me uh, on the identity of Christ and his relationship to us, Christ's relationship to his father and the father's relationship to us. Okay. All right. I, I guess I can see that because I, I know I remember I had went in my process of um, gosh, and, and I lived such and, and people who've, who've, you know, went to the backstory episode of, of the podcast where I talk about who I was, I jumped into plural marriage and then I learned about the rest. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I remember talking to somebody on this journey out of the LDS church and, and just, you know, admitting to myself, I was a fundamentalist that I was talking to someone about the Adam God and, and they said, well, that really doesn't, point you to christ right i mean you're, you're talking about you know how, how does that help you in your daily walk and your discipleship with this uh, supposed knowledge um about you know adam and slash michael being god how how does that help you help anger you to christ and that was something i always struggled with now i felt it but it was really hard for me at that at that young point in my life where I'm converting to fundamentalism of being able to express it. Okay. Maybe let me take another angle on that one. Then maybe, like, maybe this will help uh, to me, to me, I, I resonate with this and I hope that I can articulate it in such a way that it helps make sense of what I said earlier, if that didn't make sense. And, and I hope it ties together really well, but so in the endowment, you see three characters named Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael, you know, and, so there are elements of, of the Adam God doctrine clearly in the endowment, but oh, I think yeah. it's even more, it's more interesting when you look at yourself and you look at the archetypes that those are trying to, that those are supposed to represent. And the endowment tells you that you are supposed to consider yourself respectively uh, at males for Adam, females for Eve. Um, and but with the Adam God doctrine, we understand that Michael was already an exalted being and he, he was married, you know, sealed, had the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, you know, all those things. But we are going through life without that, but we're trying to obtain that <clears throat> position to return to that position that he occupies. Uh, I believe personally that when we do that, if we consider ourselves Adam and Eve, and we get to be the position where we're, we are a God unit after this life, you know, a man and wife or wives, mm-hmm. you know, that you become as a unit synonymous with Michael in the next life, you know, and Jesus then will be Jehovah to you as Jehovah is to Michael in the endowment. Right. And so when I look at the endowment, I see, I see Jesus or I see Jehovah as father Adam's Christ that redeemed him. 
And so it's typical of this relationship that, that he, that Christ as your mediator, as, as he's our mediator on this world, he will always be there for us. And he will be our counselor in when we take on that position of Michael in the next life. And Adam, our Adam, our father, Adam, will take the position of Elohim, you know, relative to us. And so the Adam God doctrine is essentially this, that whether you're Elohim, Jehovah, or Michael, all gods are Adam relative to the worlds that are theirs. Right. Even though Jesus Christ will be Jehovah to me and to you, he will be Adam to his own world at the same time. Right. Right. That doesn't, Right. And so they become descriptors of the relationships that the gods have. And I think that's a beautiful thing, too, is that is that it shows that the gods counsel with each other. Right. And and I think it also. So there's several things here that, that really appeal to me. Um, one is, is that this idea that. That. These are these are almost familiar and in, in that meaning in terms of family titles right in 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 many ways right and so your dad never stops being your dad just because he becomes your son's grandfather he's always your dad right right the the other thing that that i really like about the adam god doctrine is is first it, it personalizes god in such a way that no longer are you left to wonder could he be the God of the deists, right? Is he that distant God, that, that clockmaker that just makes the clock, winds it up, and then watches? The, that, that doesn't compute for most of us because, and, and I know there's some folks that had a bad relationship with their dad, and I get that. But by and large, you know, he, he's involved, right? I love my children. Um, you're going to experience it at some point having children. And the love you feel for your child is the most, um, and, and I don't say this in like an evolutionary or um, savage kind of way, it is the most primal love I think an individual can feel is to your children. I'll just give you, give you an example. I, um, when my son, my first son was born, he had some massive problems and, and they had to take him to the ICU. And I watched, and, and it was so strange because I was young. I was like 18, 19. And I watched him poking my son and causing him to cry. And everything in me, even though I knew here, I knew in my head that that what they were doing was to save his life. Hearing him cry and watching someone around him triggered something, right? And I, I got to go protect him. I got to go get him, right? So we we all have that as parents. I think that that really primal space that's placed within us for our children. If we feel that as mortal and corruptible and, and um, fallen in a certain sense, the, this, if, if I feel that way, then how does a father with perfect love, with perfect understanding, with perfect compassion, how does he feel about us? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, cause he's not only the father of our spirits, he's the father of our bodies as well. Right. I mean, th these are all very, very human things. And, and if there's one thing I love about the Adam God doctrine and about how Joseph Smith described God, it's that um, he takes, he takes God and, and, and he, well, by this knowledge of the Adam God doctrine, it elevates us right to the cool. sense that, that 
um, our humanity doesn't have to be uh, unholy. Our humanity can be holy in that sense. The other thing I would say is that it gives us proximity to the gods. It does. Not distant any longer. Not some unremoved force. I mean, if if you follow the doctrines of the Trinity, right? It, it almost seems like God is, and I'm going to nerd out here for a second. It makes God sound almost like the force from Star Wars, right? Yeah. Yep. It, it just out there, this this thing, this this we know it can love but it's really got no parts or passions no the adam god doctrine puts puts us in proximity to god we know the relationship yeah it it completely adds clarity to the scripture in the new testament where it says that when we we see him we shall see him as he is where he shall be like us you know and it makes complete sense now you know why that is is because if we're the ones seeing him it's because we've it's not only because we are physically in the same image, but, uh, and that's a component of it, but because we've qualified ourselves to have the same attributes as him, but we have made ourselves in the same image, uh, spiritually, but we, but we are truly in the same image literally as well. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and when you tie in this fact of eternal progression, mm-hmm. right. All of a sudden seeing Christ in that light anchors us more because now and and we're taught this in in lds circles to a degree Mm -hmm. and i say to a degree because it still makes christ almost unapproachable right the 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 older brother so to speak but with within mormonism i excuse me within fundamentalist mormonism he is very much our brother right he's in it with us because of this idea of eternal progression he is he's in the trenches with us right i, I fully agree with that in that like we we are co-heirs with christ you know he we are as you said in the trenches with him and it's you know he's like he's the general to be sure you know Absolutely. But, he, but he's the one fighting and fought the battle won the battle and it says in the scriptures that we get to be co-heirs with christ you know and being co-heirs with christ means that we get to be co-heirs with our father and, and and from the endowment, you see, uh, when you when you look at it in, et- in an eternal perspective, you see that God had co-heirs in a different mm-hmm. generation of time, you know, and that we get to, we're, re- we're re-grafting ourselves that way. Uh, and, and so we're, the blessings, another thing I like to say is the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the blessings of Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. I've never heard that, but... Yeah, that's that's a perfect way. And and it by no means diminishes the role of Christ. I, I think it it only enhances just how important that atonement and that sacrifice was on our behalf. Maybe yep. maybe it even expands on its importance. I think so. All right. Well, good. I, I think uh is there anything else you want to add to that one? Uh, you know, not really, not at the moment. Okay. All right. I want to go next to plural marriage. Okay. Because this one's, this, this one here (laughs) gets, gets, I think sometimes the word, well, maybe not the worst anymore, not since Banner of Heaven just came out, but gets one of the worst (laughs) raps as far as fundamentalist doctrine. How could that possibly, possibly 
lead us back to Christ. Because as the world looks at it, well, that's about a guy being able Mm -hmm. to satisfy every carnal desire he wants by having more than one wife. So what would you say it is about plural marriage that anchors us to Christ? I love it. Um, I think, I think the best way to approach it is share some more history from, from my side of the family where I began to realize uh, that it did, you know, the moment that the moment, the moment that I truly realized that it was supposed to do that. Uh, I was sitting on the couch in the den in my house in Seattle before I, uh, before I moved to South Dakota, before I moved to Missouri. And uh, my mom comes in, I'm just laying down. Like maybe I was on my phone or reading a book, just laying down on the couch. And so I'm 24 turning 25, not married. And my mom comes in and she says, I just hope that you can find a girl who loves the gospel as much as you do. And I said, well, mom, then you need to, you need to pray and ask the Lord to send me a girl who, who loves the, uh, you know, who believes what I believe about the gospel. And she goes, well, I'm not going to ask the Lord to send you someone who believes in polygamy. And <laughs> I just said, well, I didn't bring up polygamy, but now that we're talking about it, mom, why, why can you consider this perspective? Why can't we talk about DNC 132 and how it's supposed to bring us closer to the Lord? Why can't we talk about how it's a revelation given to Joseph Smith at the end of his life to teach his, his contemporaries you know, and I don't believe that God would reveal a principle to Joseph Smith that was not supposed to teach us about how to come unto Christ. So can we at least have this conversation about how living this law is supposed to help us be better at living the gospel? And that that those words just kind of came out of my mouth. I wasn't planning it. You know, it, you know, it was completely instigated by this conversation from my mom, you know, and but it just I was like, yeah, that's true. Why don't we? Why can't we at least talk about how Joseph Smith didn't reveal principles that weren't going to teach us about who Christ was or about how we can, how we can be closer with the Lord. And the answer, I think, and I'm, dude, I'm people who have more than one wife, please forgive me because I'm, I'm not living that law. I'm, I'm three months married. I, I know I must, I am not an expert whatsoever, you know? And so take a, take a load of salt with this, you know, but, um, I am quickly perceiving in my own life that knowing the gospel by precept is one thing and applying it by example is another thing. And I thought I had the gospel pretty well down, knew the doctrines, knew the history. Uh, I, I think I have it by precept, but in the last three months I have struggled more than I have ever struggled in trying to live the gospel by example. And I can only imagine how hard that is in a plural marriage where you have to be just to all sides, where women will completely take the side of their children. When the, when you have all the children from three different women arguing against each other, and you have to be the guy arguing, uh, say, standing on principle, and two of your women are going to be mad at you because they're just going to take the sides of the, of the kids. You know, yeah, I can understand the heartache that goes with that and, you're, and that, that strength, and you have to be on principle. You have to be on it by example. Otherwise, they're not going to follow you. You know, if you're not, if you're not living it by example, not just by correct precept. You know, and, and I think that's probably uh, there's there's I've seen women who are super keenly 
like understanding intellectually and, and by precept and can learn something. Uh, but I think most of them feel it. And, you know, and, and that's the struggle for Matt, you know, is to, to feel it, to feel it. And so with plural marriage, it is putting you in that position where you feel more keenly uh, after Christ and how to be forgiven of your sins, because darn it, you're going to mess up trying to execute righteous judgment and mercy, you know, all at the same time, you know, and so you're trying to figure this out. And the only answer I can have is that plural marriage is forcing the man, if he's righteous to seek the Lord and to live all the other principles of the gospel, not just talk it. No, that's, that's, that's good. I I'll, I'll share a little bit from mine and, and I've tried not to make this podcast about me. Sure. And, and again, take this with a load of salt because obviously my attempt at plural marriage did not work out. Right. Let me say that from the beginning. However, from having lived it for right around six years, here's what I noticed. This one's, this one's, I won't say easy for me to see the connection, but because I've experienced something with it, I, I, I can see how it works. First off, there's a dynamic there, right? And I, I remember, and I'm just going to call her Carol, the, my, my second wife who ended up leaving because I want to protect her anonymity because I believe she's still in the LDS church. But with Amber, I saw so much Christ-like love for her sister. Not her literal sister, but her sister wife, right? Because there would be times that Carol would suffer from really horrible nightmares. And she would text Amber when it was Amber's night. I don't know if I did it right, but I went every other night, right? I I, I spent every other night at, at, with each wife, but there would be times it would be, you know, midnight and I'm, I'm with Amber and Carol would call and uh, you know, or text just saying, Hey, can, can you talk for a second? Cause I had a bad nightmare. And rather than Amber talk to her, she would wake me up and be like, you need to go see Carol. You need to go spend time with her because she is, she's hurting right now. And there were so many times that went back and forth with, with that Christ-like love. Right. I mean, and, and seeing, seeing how they looked out for each other. And and it was, it was that way. The, The other thing was, is that the way they each mothered their own children, right. Um, they, they, they really did integrate as far as that goes. And that, that, that created this, this, uh, extra layer of security. I remember once one of, one of my biological kids, um, Amber was off working and, and uh, he had done something. Uh, he was riding his bike and really scraped himself up and I'm trying to doctor him up. And he's like, I'm just going to go see Carol. Cause I really don't trust you as much as I do her. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. And so, so, so the, the kids felt it right there. There was just this increase of love. And then, um, I, I think the other way it, it really anchored me personally to Christ was there was a time when um, before, before we, I entered into plural marriage, I play golf. I would 
you know, go shooting at random when I wanted, right? Because everything was taken care of at home. It wasn't like I was neglecting Amber, but when, when Carol comes along, now it's double, right? Now I'm fixing two sinks, essentially, or, or whatever the case may be. And so I have to be more selfless, right? I have to be more willing to put aside my desires for the well-being of, of the family, right? And in that surrendering of, of um, what I wanted to do, not what I needed to do, what I wanted to do, I found a, a deeper love than I knew I was capable of. And I remember it very keenly once in, in one experience where, um, and it was so simple. It, it wasn't anything grand, or, you know, in terms of, of, of a re- religious epiphany, but I was at the grill. And uh, again, if you could see my size, I'm at the grill a lot, but I'm at the grill and I'm, I'm flipping burgers and Carol's kids are playing with our kids, me and Amber's kids and, Amber and Carol are just off laughing and talking. And I just took in the scene. I'm sorry. I I just, I I took in the scene and I'm like, this is it. This is what this is all about. And in that moment, I didn't care. I didn't golf anymore. I didn't care that I didn't have perceived freedom any longer or a level of freedom. It didn't, it paled in comparison to that moment where everything seemed right. And, and there was so much love everywhere in, in on that, on those couple acres that it just, it, I didn't care. The other thing that I think it did in terms of, of anchoring me to Christ is I was forced to surrender my ego. I was forced to lay my ego down and it came that that realization came when we were all planning this vacation. And I kept trying to, you know, say, no, let's not do this. Let's do this. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And then the, I was so thankful I listened at that moment because I, I try to listen to the spirit as much as I can, but I'm, I'm human and I'm flawed and I, I sometimes don't listen. But in that moment, I listened when the spirit said, stop, just be quiet. And then Amber and Carol worked out all the details and it was one of the best vacations we ever had. Right. And the thing was, is that I wasn't involved. Now, that's not to say you just always not be involved. There were times I had to make the decision because there was a deadlock, right? And then normally I knew I made the right decision because they were both mad at me. So, but in in that moment, right, um, not everything needs my fingers in it, so to speak. Every decision doesn't need me there. And, and it forced me to surrender my ego and understand that, hey, that you're, you're real, you know, surrendering the ego allows you to really start to see uh, the, the love of God a little more in full view or in technicolor, if you will. No, no, I think that's, that's right. My comment on that, what you're saying, you know, if I'm interpreting you right, is that plural marriage in a celestial capacity is, is going to put each individual, the man and the women, in their own personal garden of Gethsemane where they are as Christ is on their knees, having their ego die in front of them. And they're saying, not my will be done, but let thy will be done father. And I'm going to, or let the will of my, let the will of God be done for the benefit of my family. Not my, not my desire, but whatever I can do to benefit the whole family is what I'm going to do. And it requires that of every single individual in the marriage. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and the most interesting thing is, is, is like I said, in that, in that experience I had where I was watching Amber and Carol talk and laugh and the kids play was I didn't, you don't care anymore, right? You're experiencing such a, an abundance of love in, in those moments that you just don't, you're, you're like, I can't believe I, I found pleasure in golfing. Right. I, I can't believe I, and, and it's not to say golf is bad, right? It's just, there are higher things and those higher things will always require more sacrifice because as, as uh, I believe it was Thomas Paine who said this, I love this quote where he says, um, heaven knows how to, how to affix a price to her gifts. Right. And if, if that was the price, I'd pay it 10 times over without thinking twice. That's awesome. So uh, anything else you want to add to that one? Uh, no, I think that covers it. I'm not an expert on, on living that. I, I could just tell you that, you know, and I share my testimony and then, you know, through the things that I'm suffering too, is you know, learning how to be married after 26 years, nearly of being a single guy is, is if you don't seek the Lord, seek the spirit, try to understand the character of God, the character of Christ and emulate them yourself. I, I, I cannot even see a prosperous marriage, you know, period. Let me, let me say this. I've been married to Amber. It'll be 27 years in November. Um, that's a process, right? That's, that's not something that, that just comes. That, that's a process. Right. And so each, each party has to, I think the beautiful, the beautiful part about it is if the gospel is being lived and each person has an understanding of the atonement and that the other person is trying that they're not perfect, that we can forgive each other as we're learning through that process, then you can grow into something beautiful. No, I, 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 I totally agree. All right. Law of consecration. This one's kind of an, I feel like this one's the easiest one to get there to, to say, how does it, how does that anchor us to Christ? Go ahead. Law of consecration, it's not united order. It's not the same thing. Uh, some people, especially when you get into fundamentalism uh, in, the, in the history and you go to the Colorado City history, you know, they wanted to establish this united order down there that was after this pattern of Orderville, you know, but in you know, Orderville down in southern Utah. Um, but it was a kind of a system. It was almost communistic where it was they, they decided what you wore, what you did and what even what you'd eat and when you'd eat you know, that kind of stuff. And so that was kind of the pattern that was given uh, in the early fundamentalist movement that this is, this is, this is law of consecration. It's like, no, that's the, that's a model of a united order. And I don't think it's the best model. Um, You know, by, I haven't studied this too much, but by contrast, you have the Brigham city united order, which was I think led by Lorenzo snow, which was based more off of a free market system. And it was way less, um, um, domineering in your personal life. And it was also equally as prosperous. And so thinking on that uh, and realizing that there's a distinction between consecration, which you covenant to live in, in the temple covenants and a united order. I, I kind of coi- coined my own phrase based off of what, what the Lord says in, in the gospel of Mark. Uh, he says that man, uh, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. And so in that instance, it's like, 
Law of Consecration was not made for United Order, but United Order was made for Law of Consecration, wherein the United Order becomes a vehicle, a covenant that you can make with other brothers. It's a marriage of men and families, you know, to help you live consecration. But you don't technically need the formality even to live consecration. And it becomes even more interesting more and more as, as fundamentalist groups divide and things become more and more out of order, you know, when there's no organ, how, how do you keep your temple covenants when you don't have an organization to pay tithing to or donate to, or, you know, and you very much have to do things by the spirit of the law and say, okay, Lord, I have an excess of what, who do I need to bless? You know, who do I need to help? Who can I give this to, you know, and then you have to pray for guidance and maybe give, you know, service, uh, and if there is, and, and if you are part of a, a community or part of a covenant group that, you know, where you have, where you are doing those things, uh, then, then I think you're truly blessed. I wish I, I, I that's one law that I truly want to live. Um, I should have pulled up something um, from a, a brother um, um, who was quoting Orson Pratt, where Orson Pratt talked, he talked a lot about law of consecration in the Journal of Discourses. And he said that essentially you're going to get a lot of people who are going to look and say, is their order going to make money? How much money are they going to make in their business before I join the order? Um, but that's not what the order is about. The order is actually, it's not about making money. First off, that's another thing. It's not about making money. It's a, it, that you, t it's a, it is a program to to teach you to perceive and love the way that christ loved right you know and so what happens if you're part of a united order and the business that you have together fails does that mean that the united order fails no it means do something else try again you know the the covenant and to me is is more important you know and living it for that reason is far more important than the the temporal thing that you do to to kind of facilitate the covenant. Right. So I, I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to tell you how I, I perceive it. And then, sure. cause I think we're saying the same thing here. So you have law of consecration and a united order. I, mm -hmm. I look at the law of consecration, like the principles, right? If, if you will, the the law of consecration would be, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good example. It would be like the the Constitution of the United States, right? Now, the mechanisms that grow out of that would be considered the United Order, right? That's that's the framework in which those principles are implemented for the benefit of of that society. Does that make sense? Yes, and can I? Can I, I don't want to interrupt what you're saying, but no. I, I have something brilliant. I think um, no. So my father. Like I said earlier, like he was so infatuated with the idea of being able to live the United Order with his sons in the future, you know, even in the church, because that's what you covenant to do. And we're not doing that. Let's live our covenants, you know. But he would always say when I was growing up, you know, the, the, the philosophy behind this is realizing that you don't own anything. All things are owned by the Lord and you are a steward of the Lord. And mm -hmm. so then you go back to this par these parables in the New Testament about the, the, 
five, uh, one, five and 10 talents, you know, things like that. Um, when that becomes your perspective on life, law of consecration becomes, I think, um, exciting, but it also becomes understandable when you realize that this is, I am, I am trying to improve upon, uh, what the lord's stewardship is you know or ownership is and the promise is if you do that you will obtain your own you know talents or you'll you will then in the future be able to to be a possessor of all that the lord has that's consecration as well is that when you that's part of the promise is we covenant in this life through the temple to give our all to uh, the building up of the kingdom of God upon the earth and God's covenant to you back is that you get to be the possessor of all that I have and all that right. the rest of the gods have. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the, beautiful, that's the other side of the coin. That I don't think it's looked at is that right. if you live that law, the promise is that you will also be the possessor of everything. Well, and, and look, I've seen people in a united effort, right. Um, and, they do a pretty darn good job of it, but I could see how that would try a person, right? I could understand because you're going to work shoulder to shoulder with people. And as we know, every person comes with their own worldview and their baggage that goes along with that. Right. You know, I'm, I'm probably the guy toting the most baggage in, in that kind of scenario. And so when I see it working, like, like it does in, in, with with the church i go to it's astounding right because you have to check your ego right you have to be able to say this is just what needs done and and got to do it right and in doing that you learn you learn two two important lessons i think so far from what i've been able to observe um and again i'm not an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination i don't want anyone to think that i'm i'm remotely close to to being at that level but what i noticed is is that um once that ego gets checked um the flaws of others are easily overlooked right once you check your ego and your ego is no longer guarding your flaws because that's really what an ego does right is it is it 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 allows you to kind of cover up to yourself your own flaws once that ego's done and you realize ooh, i got some stuff i gotta work on here all of a sudden right. you don't care about somebody else's and and it's a lot easier to extend charity and forgiveness and this idea that maybe even the other guy's perceived flaw is a weakness in your thinking right and and in doing that and this is just what i've observed again i haven't hardly at all lived this i've helped out a few times that's it um mm-hmm. what what i've seen is is that there there's there's a brotherly love that happens when when that kind of sinks up right and you can get a lot done <laughs> if if that's the case and i'm not saying that, that anybody's perfect at it and like i said before i am certainly far down on the list because like i said i've helped out three or four times is all but I can definitely see that, that again, once you surrender that ego and you understand that you have your own flaws and you you start forgiving your brethren of theirs in this effort, this united effort, all of a sudden you start feeling the bonds of brotherly love in, in a much more powerful way. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And if you don't have the faith in the system, it's not going to work for you either because you're not going to be able to give it all that it will require if you don't have the faith for it, right? Right. If you don't believe that this is the way that the gods live, if, if, if this is the way that Christ would live if he was here, uh, if you don't have that kind of faith, what is it going to do for you? You're not going to get the blessings from it. Right. Right. Well, and, and that's just it, right? If, if Let's go to the Pearl of Great Price where the Lord says, this is my work and my glory to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. It's a selfless effort, right? There, mm-hmm. There's nothing in there where God is like, I'm doing this so I can have kids that will stroke my ego one day. No, he's like, no, the whole reason I am here doing this is because I love my children. I think a united order gets this, and law of consecration helps get us to that point while in mortality. Because you're not centered on the self. You're centered on others. And when, when that compassion happens, you know, it's a... It's very much a a uh, a type of a, well, not just a type. It is very much a Christ-like attribute, right? Right. It's such a trial too, especially for men. It's like it's like the it's like the counter uh, to plural marriage for men, you know, of where man has to share his labor and even his you know the works of his hands, whatever they may be, whether it's monetary or where actual creations and labor, you know, the works of his hands get shared with other families. And, and that, that is a, something that we covet and protect, you know, we are engineered to, to fight for personal, you know, be territorial, men are territorial. Right. And so to expand and kind of peel that back and uh, say, look, brother, I love you. Let me use my hands and impart my substance to you, you know, where you begin to feel something positive instead of this, this guarded territorial feeling that's very, very base and instinctual according to the natural man. Yeah. It's it's very much, I think akin to the women peeling back uh, their territorial nature in a, in a marriage to their husband as as well. Yeah, no, I, I could totally see that. And just from my own experience, right. I mean, I'm a guy who doesn't have a lot to offer, right. I'm, kind of good at surveying right and you know land surveying so so when i when i'm able to go out there and and provide that service i feel like i'm contributing i i feel like i feel good about it when it's all done right um when i if i was to go to my actual job and they're like hey we're not going to pay you i'd be a little pissed right so it's 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 a completely different thing and and because you realize, okay, this is what I can contribute. This is what he can contribute. Now, his isn't more important than my, well, his might be more important, but mine's definitely not more important than his, right? And so in that, in that sense, I mean, yeah, I, I, I feel like you can contribute to that. And, and when you do that, I don't know. It's a different feeling, man. It's, it's a different feeling. I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't expect to have it. I'll, I'll be honest in, 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 in fundamentalism, that was the thing I was the most worried about, right. Is oh, that sure. I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, but on the few times I did, Oh, there was, 
there was there was such a a christ-like love in in that in those moments at times that that i could totally see how how that law of consecration and working within a united effort or a united order can definitely anchor a person back to christ yeah i think so too and look at the opposite when you're spending all your time laboring for money how do you feel you know compared to you don't feel anything no sure you you get some satisfaction maybe that you're putting bread on the table for your family but you get nothing out of pursuing uh money you know and the, the scriptures talk about that you know the, the the labor who labors for money shall perish and the labor who labors for zion you know you know shall prosper or however that's worded you know and i like hugh nibley hugh nibley had a lot of uh good things to say about united order and law of consecration and uh oh it's gonna escape my mind here he said all must work but the lunch is free but what right. kind of work i've i've heard that yeah yep exactly i i think <sighs> So I'm going to tell a story here of sure. a uh, of a, a kid that I knew because because you bring up an important point that all must work. Mm-hmm. I had I worked at a company who um, his mom was a secretary there, and she had a son who had Down syndrome, and um, I was overseeing about four or five crews, and she's like, he just he uh he's scared of going anywhere else to a job because he's worried he's going to get ridiculed or whatever she's like he needs to do something you, you know we don't have to pay him but can he work with you when you have stuff to do cuz we get in great big shipments of lath and you know um hubs and stakes and paint and flagging and all the stuff surveyors need and I was like, yeah, he can, he can do that. Absolutely. And I'll make some room in the budget and give him a, get him a paycheck and this will be good. And his name was Bryant and Bryant came to work. And when he first came into my office, um, he was so timid. So you could tell he just felt like he was, he didn't have a lot of worth. He apologized a lot for not doing anything wrong. And so one day I, uh, I took him out there and I said, okay, here's what you're going to do, Brian. I'm putting you in charge of the, of the supplies, right? So just count up these supplies. And when it gets to this number, come tell me and I'll order more. And it's up to you to put it away. And if you need help, come get me and I'll come help you. And he was like, I I don't, I don't know if I can do that, Dave. I, that, that, that seems to be above me. And I'm like, Brian, I think you're going to do great. I think you can do this. And so he started doing that week after week. And then one day I noticed he just came to the office and he, he was smiling and he was happy. And I was like, man, you seem chipper today. What's going on? And he goes, I have something to do with people. I think that love me. And too often we look at work in, in the society that we live in now. And again, it's not a horrible way of doing it. I mean, outside of a United order, I think capitalism is probably the most beneficial system there is to everybody involved. But it, in that moment, I realized that work was more than just about 
collecting a paycheck. It was about an individual's ability to feel like they were of worth, that they were of, of importance. And, and, and you, you get that feeling whenever you, you do. And again, I haven't done it a lot, but in the times I've been there to help out, I have felt that same thing. And, and I think it's important to note that, that if there's another thing that law of consecration and United order does, it's give people a sense of worth and value and importance. Absolutely. I love that. Um, it, it brings uh, me to remember something that a brother in this community said, uh, he says, uh, we reproduce after our own image. And so just like God reproduced us in his image, if you're a carpenter, you reproduce carpenters. You know, when you work with other brothers and even in a United order capacity, you know, if you're a painter, you're going to, you're going to reproduce other painters. If you have a company, you're what's going to happen is you're going to work with these brothers until they, you know, as apprentices, when they're apprentices, then they're going to become journeymen or, or masters and then what are they going to do? They're going to split off and start their own companies. And there's not anything wrong with that. You've now successfully trained up someone into godhood, essentially, you know, speaking gospel wise. Uh, but now they're self-sufficient. But if imagine how beautiful it could be if it's outside of Babylon, where now they're your, they're your competition because they're starting their own company, but that you work together and you have this united order, you know, and now he is he, running double the capacity, you know, with his company and your company, you now have double the, the manpower, right? You can take on bigger jobs. You can take more jobs faster, you know, and it benefits the whole order to do it that way. Right. 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 And, and that was a, that was another point that I, I heard someone make when, when talking about this was that oftentimes your, your, your horizons are going to broaden, right? Because maybe one day you have to get inside the backhoe to dig something, right? To, to put in a trench somewhere, or one day you may have to figure out how to be a stonemason, right? Whatever right. it is in, in that united effort, there's going to be times where if a brother is sick, if a brother can't make it, if a brother has gotten to the point to where it just hurts too bad, right to actually do the labor you're gonna have to do it yeah and, and i think the other thing it does is it creates natural affection look anytime someone teaches you something from a position of love it's only natural to build some sort of relationship some sort of rapport with that individual because he took time to teach you and you took time to be quiet enough to learn and that builds love and respect and christ-like bonds Amen to that. I love it. So, all right. You ready to move on to another one? Sure. The endowment. How does the endowment anchor us to Christ? Oh, I love this one. Okay. Um, I was actually given some thoughts on this. So, where to start with that? Okay. So, on my mission with the, with the church, I encountered an artist who I guess will probably remain unnamed, although uh, he he was drawing or, or painting rather. Uh, he had several paintings depicting restoration type events or theme, you know, theme paintings. And one of them was, it was mind blowing. And it was um, 
you know, in it was the, a resurrected savior, you know, that was, that he was depicting in this painting and his hands are outstretched, you know, uh, mm-hmm. in a way where you can clearly see the palms, you know, and in his hands, I saw a compass in a square, you know, where the, where the marks, you know, like they were marks, they were, they were cut, you know, into, into his flesh there, you know, but, uh, they were not holes per se, you know, but they were, there was cuts in his flesh in the shape of a compass and of the square, you know, with that open bird's mouth, uh, shape. Gotcha. And I asked him about that and he, you know, he says, Oh, you recognize that, do you? And he says, well, I don't know why I did this, but when I was preparing to, to paint this, um, it was impressed upon my mind to take some steaks or whatever, some cut of meat and to pound some, pound some, uh, some nails, some big old nails through, through the, the, you know, this slab of meat. And when he removed the nails, he was surprised that it did not create a puncture hole, but that the wound closed back up. Um, and that the, the shape of the wound was that open bird's mouth uh, shape. And it was impressed upon his mind that the, that the garment marks were literally represented by the, you know, or the, you know, the, those two in, in any case are representative of, uh, the, of, of Christ's wounds in the flesh. I think it's incredibly interesting. It's been in Galatians and Paul says, henceforth, let no man trouble me for I bear in my body, the marks of my Lord Jesus Christ. Super interesting. So what is it talking about there? Does Paul have the marks of, did he, did he crucify himself to have the marks of, of, of Christ in his flesh? Or is he saying, let no man trouble me because I'm wearing the garment of the Holy priesthood and I have the marks of the crucifixion on me, you know, and especially with a, with a navel mark and with, with Christ being jabbed in the, in his side with a, with a spear, you know, and it, um, I was shown, and this bears out, and I think the source was in the Nauvoo Endowment Companies, where there was a Bishop George Miller points out that verse, that same verse, and he says, now this was the closest that the Apostle Paul would dare allude to these things in writing, but the garments that we wear now have the marks that he's referring to. And so to me, it was this mind-blowing moment when I saw that, and I had that story, you know, this, this encounter that I had with this artist on my mission, you know, years earlier, like six years earlier, you know, completely wow. blew my mind. See, yeah, I never caught that in Galatians where Paul says, I have the marks. I'm sure I read it probably a thousand times and figured he was speaking figuratively of, of, you know, Christ's countenance or whatever, but that, that, that could make some sense that, that he has the marks of Christ. He may be wearing the garment. Right. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think it's really interesting how he says, "Henceforth, let no man trouble me." Right, and I think some some fundamentalists get in trouble for wearing the the old style garment. You know, and right? It's funny how he says that. Henceforth, let no man trouble me. <laughs> right, right. Get no, out of my face about it or something. I don't know. No, that's that's a very interesting point, and I guess the other thing that that I feel comfortable talking about here are, are the covenants we make, right? Because, you know, without talking about the delivery method or anything like that, but as you look at the covenants we make in the temple, I can't think of any that are self-aggrandizing. 
right? So, so we 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 think of like um, the law of sacrifice, right? That's sacrificing. That's an outward giving, right? Go go on to the law of um, the law of uh, chastity, right? Don't get me wrong. We benefit from from leading a chaste life, but also we're not hurting our spouses, right? That's that's a that's an injunction to guard the family, to guard that sacred unit, to to put aside your own selfish desires and and the lustfulness of 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 your flesh, so that you preserve the 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 tender feelings of your spouse. Law of consecration right that has nothing to do with your own benefit now because of the way god works we know that all of those things that we do 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 benefit us in some way but by and large those are outward things that we do to for others right look past your first time through the temple every time after that you go for somebody else Right. Mm -hmm. You're not making those covenants all over again. You're doing it for somebody else. You are doing that's a beautiful that's a beautiful thing right there. Right. And that's what President Brigham Young talked about, President Joseph Smith talked about is and what the scriptures talk about is being a savior on Mount Zion. You know, yep. That's what that refers to is going through the temple and making those covenants on behalf of your dead ancestors and friends so that they can be co heirs with you. That's a beautiful thing. That's because that's what Christ did for us is he made us co-heirs with him. Right. Right. And I can't think of anything more Christ-like than doing something for somebody else that they can't do for themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we couldn't atone for our own sins. I mean, the the closest we could come before Christ to to having our sins remitted was was animal sacrifice and Mm -hmm. even that was a type in the shadow pointing towards what christ would ultimately do for us yeah that was that was only to show symbolically that for man to because what christ what christ asked the nephites was you need to sacrifice a contrite heart a broken heart and a contrite spirit so when you take that with animal sacrifice it seems to me symbolically the Lord, by instituting that, was saying, you are killing the natural man. You are killing that beast that you're killing is actually the natural man. That's what you need to kill. That's what this symbolizes on the altar right here. And that's what Christ asked for when he when when he abolished that the law of sacrifice was he, he made it more clear that I am asking you to to break your heart. And have, be more contrite, be spiritual and sacrifice the animal that is within you instead. Right. Right. Yeah. So I I look at I look at the endowment as a whole and it's it's first, you know, kind of putting us under covenant to to obey God. Right. Mm -hmm. And then all the subsequent um, covenants we make really tie closely into well, not closely, almost entirely into how we treat others. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting to me that on one level, Christ is saying, yes, here's my grace, uh, and here are the conditions for, for being completely forgiven by the Father if you keep my commandments, right? 
But then that's not enough. And Christ has to go further in, and the priesthood has to go further in giving these oaths and covenants in the temple that teach you how to live according to the life uh, that you will need to live in order to be in his presence again. And that's what the temple is for. And what those oaths and covenants are for is now you're going beyond grace and you're going to what Christ said, be therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. These are the social laws that are going to teach you how to be perfect. So that by the time you die and obtain your resurrection, you know how to live in the society of the gods. Right, right, exactly. And, and you can't get that without instruction, without making those solemn covenants, right? Because <laughs> unless we have that upon us, right, constantly written in our hearts and in our minds, that this is how you attain to what our father has. You have to become like Christ. You have to start striving towards that. Now, I'm not saying that either of us will ever come close to what Christ is, but we at least need to have those ideas in mind and start taking those steps. And we do. And the, 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 the function of the endowment is to get you there, right? To start you down that road, to start you thinking, how is it I, I turn my thinking? When you take into account that all of those covenants we make are selfless covenants within the temple, that they are to guard those we love and care about and want to work with, it can't do anything but anchor you back to Christ. Yeah. There's when you look at the millennial prophecies from the old Testament, it's so interesting to me that when, when the Lord's talking about preparatory to the millennium, he says that my law will be written in their hearts, you know, and how the endowment, as you're saying, it causes that change of heart where you where you know, if you internalize those covenants and, and start going down that path, like you won't become exactly perfect as Christ is, but if you have that change of heart, and it's written on your hearts. You know, the Book of Mormon says that when you die, the spirit that you have is what you have in the next right. world. too. And so if you don't have that written on your heart, you can't be going the same direction that God wants you to go, go to. And so the endowment is, help, is to help facilitate that change. Secondly, the other millennial prophecy regarding Isaiah or not Isaiah, uh, Elijah and Malachi talks about hearts too it says you know behold i reveal uh the priesthood by the hand of my servant elijah and he will plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers will turn to the, their children lest i come and 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 the earth be utterly wasted at my coming and so it's so you know i don't think the lord's a liar you know and he says the earth will be wasted what does that mean it means the even the atonement of christ can't do you know, saving us from our sins individually is one thing, but if we do not prepare our hearts to to live with God, it's wasted. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And and so often, I think, I think this especially. I mean, it took me years of going to the LDS temple to figure figure some stuff out. Right. I don't mm -hmm. think. I don't think that 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 it was particularly instructive, right, about why we made the covenants we made 
inside the temple within the LDS church. They just left it at, you know, it was necessary or something like that, right? This will prepare you for godhood. Well, how does that work? How does that mechanism work? Explain to me how it is that that by living consecration, that living chastity, you know, anchors me to Christ. Well, again, it's looking outward rather than inward, bridling your lustful desires, bridling your desire to gain wealth and riches. It, it can't help but force you to look beyond yourself and and in that looking beyond yourself and caring more about others around you that that's that's christ-like in its definition i agree so michael i want to take just a few minutes here and i want to talk a little bit about priesthood and how priesthood can anchor us to christ i think oftentimes we look at priesthood as simply a hierarchical uh, structure that is just meant to govern. Well, it is meant to govern, but that's not the sole purpose, right? That's, That's not it at all. If you're obtaining priesthood to obtain power and dominance, you are sadly mistaken. This is a servant's role, right? And the only way that priesthood can function effectively is in a servant's role Mm -hmm. um obviously there's administration within the kingdom that has to be done right that that administration but but servitude should never suffer for administration no and i have a i have a mentor in the priesthood out here who um i can i would consider my file leader uh, honorably he, he i love something that he says he says no one's first on the freeway right right and so if you look at the priesthood as an endless line of authority you know we we trace our you know we everyone who's ordained in the church can trace their priesthood back to the, the three witnesses and then joseph smith right you know and, and then christ and uh and all that but it goes on far far longer than that right it goes through it goes through the worlds you know and so you have this huge long freeway with all these cars representing uh, each individual on a chain. No one's first because there's going to be a lot of people. There's going to be as many people after you if you're faithful as there is above. Yeah. Yep. No one's first on the freeway. The blessings are the same. Just get get in the car and go on the destination. Get to get to the destination. No, that's that's exactly right. And and I I get the administration side of it, and it has to be there. Right, it, it has to be, it, it, and that's it, supposed it, to teach you too how to be right. how to be governed before you can govern and become right. a god. You know? Right, exactly. But when 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 the idea of servant leadership suffers for the for administration, that's a sad state of affairs. And I think we can can see that really strongly within the mother church, if you will. Right, where the 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 honors and titles of men have found their way into priesthood offices and it's a sad oh. state of affairs because here's the thing what what are we going what what do men do with that priesthood right by and large that you don't get priesthood for yourself you get priesthood to bless the lives of somebody else whether yes, you, if you don't if you don't do it where are your blessings right exactly Exactly. 
you get the priesthood to to administer the sacrament as the sons of Aaron did at the altar of sacrifice, right? You get the priesthood to to be able to bless your children and your wife, to provide them with comfort and healing. You get priesthood to administer the the blessings of the temple, to instruct people on how to to approach godliness. That's you a get, that's another thing oh, I'd like ahead. to touch on too, with especially regarding higher principles and higher higher blessings. The mindset is the attitude should should be how can I help everyone keep the covenants that they've made. Also, what does it mean to magnify your priesthood? We hear that in the church, probably in fundamentalism too. Magnify your priesthood, and you think it's oh, do a good job in your calling. No, it means. When you look at magnifying talents in the scriptures, it means to make more, you know, that with that parable in the new Testament, you know, uh, five turns into uh, 10 and 10 turns into 50 or whatever it was. Right. Or however that goes. And if you're not making more priesthood with your priesthood, are you magnifying the priesthood? If you're not administering the covenants and standing as an administrator, as a legal administrator, I think you're going to be held accountable for, for, for withholding, uh, opportunity for people to progress personally because you're not magnifying your talents and the, what did the lord say when he when he came and found that servant saying you've hidden your talent you did nothing with the priesthood you didn't right. make any you did not ordain anyone else right right the you know the the other thing that i think we got to talk about with with priesthood or at least maybe just me i i don't know what your situation is is when when i was first uh coming into the branch and exploring fundamental fundamentalism i kept coming across the term file leadership right mm-hmm. who's your file leader and i was like okay here we go we're gonna start down the path of oppression and you yeah. know and and having someone over you lording it over you i am so fortunate that that the, the you know because it was explained to me you'll have a file leader and and he'll 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 help you Right. And I'm like, oh, well, well, I guess we'll see. And I I had a pretty profound experience when praying if I should should join the branch. Um, it's it's one that I don't think I'll ever share, but with a few because it was so profound. But I had to sure. take that on faith to do it, right? Because every inclination was like, ooh, I don't want to do this. But it seemed it, the answer was it was correct. And so when when I received a file leader, and I'm not going to say his name because I don't know if he'd be comfortable with it, so I'm going to leave it out. But uh, he knows who he is. He has <laughs> been nothing but loving and supportive and the opposite of tyrannical, right? He has been a counselor and a close friend and a confidant, and I see the wisdom in it, right? I, I absolutely see the wisdom in it. I, I feel the love from from file leadership, and and it, it, I feel like if there's one thing the LDS Church could really take away from fundamentalists, it's this idea of file leadership. I think so too. I I absolutely agree. My father, uh, speaking from my observation, was completely destitute of a mentor uh, in the in the church, except for his father-in-law. You know, um, so my my grandpa, you know was essentially for many years his his file leader but now he has none you know 
uh, really. You know, Grandpa's still alive, but he doesn't really function the same way. You know, he's old. Right. Um, and and so yeah, I think you're completely right. And I I don't think that there's anything wrong with with file leadership either. I um, in fact, I'll share a little quote from the file leader of my file leader, um, who's who's dead now, as well. His name was uh, Jackson Ted Jessup, and he he said, "My greatest fear for this people." is that they will either become a dictatorship or they will become too independent to take righteous counsel. Right. And boy, if that's not the state of fundamentalism in a nutshell right now, I don't know what, it, what is. Yeah. Because we, we have to, we have to be able to take that. So, cause it's a two way street, right? On one hand, the, the, the responsibility I can tell by, by the good example I have of file leadership is this is someone who loves you, who cares about you, who takes this responsibility very seriously. The other side of that is the the other individual's willingness to say, to put his ego on the altar again and say, you know what? You probably have some wisdom there that I really need to, to take some counsel from. Um and when that happens and, and both approach it from a, a space of love, you, you can't help but but be benefited by it on, on both sides. Um, yeah, I there's something that happens, I think, within this structure, this priesthood structure, where a person begins to have their own ministry, right? Because mm-hmm. let's face it, the natural man does not want to minister to other people. He's like, I got to go get as much as I can. I have to build up. I have to do X, Y, and Z. But with this idea of servant leadership that the priesthood teaches us, well, that's, that's a different beast entirely, right? That's, that's something that, that fosters love. And um, leadership simply doesn't mean leading. It means ministering. Yes, I think so. It's a uh, yeah. It's all about. It's just like I mentioned earlier in a marriage, living the gospel by by example, not just by precept. You know, a file leader or priest leader could say the same thing, right? Like this is the doctrine. This is what you need to do, um, and not live it himself, right? And then, what kind of relationship are you going to have if he's just telling you what to do or telling you what the doctrine is? Uh, but if, if there becomes a union of feeling between the two of you, um, that bond is, that's that bond that Christ is talking about in John 17, where you're becoming one. Well, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, and you look at Christ's life, right? He's washing his apostles feet. Yes. Right. He is, he is washing their feet. He is healing people. He is raising people from the dead. He is feeding the masses. None of that is really self-aggrandizing. No. <laughs> it's, all out, it's all outward expressions of love and concern for his, his brothers and sisters. And I think with, with priesthood, we men really need to understand that to to really tap back into the power of the priesthood um i agree so so real quick because i i want i want to touch on this subject i think within the lds church 
somehow all the things we talked about today, right? About how these higher principles now, and I understand some of these higher principles aren't talked about anymore in the LDS church, but these higher principles somehow have lost this connection back to Christ, right? Where, where, they're almost esoteric. No one really talks about it. Yes, that's true. What can can we do as fundamentalists to make sure we never fall into that trap? That's a that's a great question. And I don't need I don't know if I'll be able to give the greatest answer on the end of this this deal here, but I I think one, you need to be in constant reminder of who you're emulating as a priesthood holder. Like you just said, like you need to remind yourself that you are, you are trying to follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ in his mediating position. And you become a mediator between God and your wives and your children. And you need to serve your wives and your children like Christ would serve you. And you need to try to live as near as possible in, the, in every moment, I think, and try to say, what what would Jesus do? It's that simple. And try to teach your children how how to. I, I my mind is blown right now with when I compare what I have seen in my my father and mother's marriage and how well they live the gospel and I never knew it. You know when they they they, they they're not fundamentalists, but when I look at them living the gospel in their family life, oh my goodness! They're I mean I've only been married for three months and we're still you know it's still it's still brand new and I'm my mind is being blown, but they seem perfect compared to me looking at myself already in my marriage that they, I know from their fruits, I was able to have a love of the gospel. I was able to have a love of the doctrine of Christ because of uh, they, they lived that they made that in their marriage that they made that so important. Uh, And so by, by emulating the savior in such a way that your children will love the gospel um, and then begin to ask you, what does this mean when when Christ says, "Be therefore perfect as 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 our Father in heaven is perfect"? How can we be perfect? And then you can begin to explain to them. That's by oath and covenant, son. You know, when you go to the temple one day, you'll learn about that. That's exactly what Christ is talking about. Is is how to be, and he and you will be taught how you can be made perfect in the next life. Uh, you know, things like that, and and be able to live in such a way that they can trust you. Uh, when you when you tell them and then where they can remember things like I remember my father telling me about Isaiah saying that seven women would take hold of one man and this, this would happen before the you know the end of before the beginning of the millennium you know and I remember the things that they taught um, and not to be so rigid in systematizing how Adam God fits with the scriptures for example it's not going to work every there, there's a lot actually in there, by the way, uh, that could be a whole nother podcast. Uh, if you, I think maybe you touched on that with Jacob, but there's, there's a tendency to, I think, correct when you become a, a doctrinally minded person where it's very intellectual, just be cautious not to, to fall away from the, um, the other side of, of emotion and being, being truly, um, feeling after the hearts of other people around you. Um, I think you hit on a, a, a really big one right there, right? 
so often, and I think it's the nature of what we're in with fundamentalism, right? Because we constantly feel like we, we have to prove ourselves, right? right. Because we, we have been challenged by the LDS church to some extent of, well, explain to me how it is you feel like you can do these things and still teach these things. So, mm-hmm. so we feel like we have to prove it, right? And to some extent we do. But but if if you're only if you're only getting it here in your head and not in your heart, you've lost it. Right? Yep. At that yep. point, you yep. might as well be be an anthropologist as much as a priesthood holder. I love that. That's perfect. That is a perfect analogy. Because unless you feel it you're really on the outside looking in as a social experiment. Um, so, so you have to feel it. Now, having said that, once you feel it, I don't think there's anything wrong with digging deep and trying to, to, to prove your stance, right? I encourage that. I think, I think that's definitely needed. But feel it first and then go after the intellectualism of it. The Lord says to love him with all your heart, might, and mind. So you got heart and mind in there. You know, that's so interesting to me. When you look at uh, old uh, uh, theologians in the church, they were so good with with describing both the heart and the mind. Uh, uh, Cleon Skousen comes to my mind where he talks about his journey in discovering what good does it do for a man to die on a cross for the whole world? Yeah, what good does that do? Yes, I can feel sympathy for a man who dies on the cross, right? But what does it do? You know, and so he does begin, as you say, to uncover and investigate the science almost, the the, the theology, the, the logic, the philosophy behind how Christ being hung on a cross, nails driven through his hand, through his suffering, how can it accomplish what it accomplished? And it is the way that he delivers uh, his thoughts on that is so uh it's so it feeds the soul the heart and the and the mind in such a in such a degree um that that it's truly inspiring but that that's what we need to be about and uh ask your children and ask your friends uh according to the kind of like the socratic method like ask them questions and in a way that makes them think about the answer so that when they come to you and share their thoughts that you can share yours and uh about the gospel i think that's the best way to to teach the gospel in the family. That's how my father taught was very, he'd always ask questions and dude, when I was young, it drove me nuts to that. He wouldn't give me the answer sometimes. Right. Right. I, I think also um, the, the one thing that I remember from my time in the LDS church is it seemed almost like a checklist, right? Yes. Here's your punch list items that you need to do. And, and, and sometimes I think it got, don't get me wrong mormonism in its purest form is very goal oriented right i mean we're trying to get someplace but if we forget to enjoy the journey i think we're going to really miss out so i you know the 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 one thing i've told my son is you know the one son that's still young enough that that he goes with us when we go to church in 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 spanish fork now to the branch rather than, than the, uh, the LDS church. I'm like, 
don't look at these like a punch list item. Uh, enjoy this. Enjoy these times. Enjoy this growth, right? I don't don't look at it as here, 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 and here. That you're looking at it wrong, right? Right. That you're running the race with the people around you too. Right. 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 Don't don't do that. Feel it and enjoy it. Right. That's the other thing. I I don't think that. Look, living the gospel can be tough because it's challenging. It's designed to be challenging. Yes. But I, I equate it to working out, right? There are times when going to the gym just sucks, right? I don't like it. I'm making a more concerted effort to go to the gym. Getting up at 4.30 in the morning, staring at that clock, getting my shoes on, going outside when it's cold, getting in the cold car, driving to the gym sucks. Yes. But, but in the midst of working out, all of a sudden I enjoy it, right? The blood is pumping. I'm seeing gains and it's fun, right? And I think we need to look at the gospel much like that. Yeah, there's times it's going to be tough to stay motivated or tough to do these things. But you're also going to enjoy a lot of it. Yeah, I like what you bring that analogy you bring up with working out. It's in the same instances in the gospel and with working out, you're you're competing against yourself. You know, right. Your former self and no one else. You're competing nope. against yourself. No. Nope. Just try to be better. And and enjoy it right i mean there 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 are things to be enjoyed here i don't think god wishes us to be miserable i think there's times of misery because this is part of the experience but i think by and large this is designed to bring us joy and if we're not enjoying this we're kind of missing the point yep and on top of that and back to the original question the thing i would say to people in the church is the thing that's wrong with removing things from the, from the endowment and, and changing things in the endowment is that it is preventing you from learning how to grow and compete in that race and imp- improve yourself to the best that you can improve yourself. You are removing the tools out of that gym to help be fit to, you know, to, to be in a celestial glory. You were, you know, not that you can't do it ultimately, but you are having the tools removed from you right now about that teach you how to live in this life to be prepared to live with God the next. That's why it's so dangerous. And right. so if you can look at it from that perspective, um, you know, that's what we have to offer is when, you know, we have, like you said, like the original endowment, you know, as close as we can get back to that, you know, we believe in that because we believe that the principles therein will help better exercise us towards the celestial glory. Same with plural marriage, same with law of consecration. You know, these are the tools um, that help us understand who God is, understand who Christ is and understand us ourselves. And so why would you want anything less? Why would you want anything less that is not capable of, of giving you the strength to go through the veil? Right. Right. And, and I think, (laughs) I think that's part of the problem that, that the LDS church is seeing now, right? Because they've kind of watered this down so much that it's, and this isn't to slam on Protestantism, right? I, I right. but but it's 
just another church, right? I mean, it's gotten kind of that same feel. And as as they lose people, it's it's I think it's largely because the gym is too soft, so to speak, right? All they got in there now are 10 pound weights and a treadmill that doesn't really work beyond level one. Right. And the moment that you catch up to uh, the personal record of the prophet, uh, you're, you're a dangerous man now and you can't go beyond him. Exactly. Where uh, a prophet, a prophet's role is he's not Christ. He's not the mediator between you and God. He is to help you get to be a mediator. Yep. You know, he, he is there to help put you in that position uh, to your family that Christ is relative to the whole family, you know, yep. and, and it's also his job to get to that same position for his family as well. Yep. Yep. No, I couldn't agree with you more. So we've done here right at two hours and 11 minutes. So it's, it's went by quick. Um, you know, just one thing I thought I'd share maybe. Yeah. About all of these things, like you just said, like, what's the, what is the utility? Like you and I, you said, you know, we, we, we come on the same ground that we, we identify with president young because he was able to take almost abstract principles and, and, and uh, concepts and apply them in a practical temporal nature and view things as spiritually and temporally uh, as one great whole. Right. Now I, sh- I sure love the man because of that. Um, so these things, temple endowments, um, teaching you how to live the social laws to prepare you to, to know, uh, to live with God comfortably in the next life, Adam, God, uh, teaching you who God is and who you are and who Christ is and the right and the role that Christ plays between the two of you. Um, I think with all that in mind, it's, it's, I hope that those who listen to this will then reflect on John chapter 17, where Christ himself is giving this great, uh, it's called the great high priest intercessory prayer. And he is praying that the 12 uh, will be one with each other as he is one with, with his father. And that also that they will be one with him as he is one with the father. And so you have this covenant relationship being established um, that I think is typical, you know, of us as well in the priesthood. Um, when, when you live all the laws of God and obtain the blessings of it and are truly in the spirit living the law, you are moving from priesthood to Godhood, a body of priesthood to a body of Godhood. Because you have that those two distinct bodies in that in the John 17 represented. You have the 12 representing the priesthood, and you have two members of the Godhead with Christ and, and with God. And so the entire point of priesthood is to move you into Godhood. You know, to become one, as the 12 were to become one with, with Christ and with God there. And so we are looking to 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 become acquainted with the family tree of life, you know that father Lehi saw and, and obtain the fruit and the seeds of eternal life right there, you know, and then you get to go plant it on a new world when you're a God and then get, say and invite to your children, come partake of this. And then you get to do that forever. If you keep your covenants, you know, to me, that's, and that, that harkens back to the, what I said earlier is that the, the blessings of, 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the blessings of, of Elohim, Jehovah, and Michael that you can, and it's so interesting to me that when you read Genesis 14 or 15, and God is telling Abraham that your seed will be more numerous than the stars of heaven. On another world, he received, God the Father received that same promise from his God, saying that your seed will be as, num- as, as numerous as the stars of heaven. And that's the, that's the beauty of it, is we get to partake of that blessing, and others will get to partake of that, and we'll be, we'll be grafted together. And that's the, that's the beautiful thing about that family tree of God right there, is the tree of life. And uh, I think that when you, that will, that, I hope that image helps people understand what priesthood is for and, right. and what our goal is. All right. Well, Michael, I can't tell you how much it's meant to me that you came on. I think this has been a great conversation and uh, let's do it again. I would love that. I'll think of something else to talk about, but uh, let's do it. Yeah, let's, let's do it again. All right. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it, man. God be with you and see everybody next time.